every moment can actually be like a childhood. It can be something you experience in a way where it's a mystery for you, but it, it rings something deep in you. You don't have to ask why something moves you. You just have to move with that. You have to create ways to bring it into your work and really shoot first, ask later. That was Tal Air, and this is Nordic Portraits. Taler is an internationally renowned visual artist, working across a diverse range of media, including painting, drawing, textiles, and sculpture. Known for his highly colorful palettes and playful imagery, Tal has forged a name for himself as one of Denmark's preeminent contemporary artists. His works have been widely exhibited, including at Chime and Reed in New York, Royal Academy of Art in London, and Contemporary Fine Arts in Berlin, just to name a few. Tal, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you. I wanted to start, Tal, by taking you back to an auspicious moment from your early days at art school, where you were painting a still life and you'd primed the plate with plastic paint that was too hard, so it was making painting difficult, but something quite interesting happened. Can you describe what you encountered in that moment? Oh, that's a long time ago. That's when I left high school or that would be in Denmark, you call it gymnasium. And I, I left and I had to give my parents some kind of reason for leaving in the middle of normal school. And I said, oh, I want to go to art school. And that bought me a little bit of time. But actually, art school was quite terrible. I, I didn't enjoy it. Because for me, as a, growing up as a child, art had no name. It was not called art. It was just sitting down and drawing, whatever. You needed to draw. But going into art school meant that it was similar school. There were certain things you had to draw in certain ways. And I always think of it as when I walked into this art school, my ability to draw went out the door. I went in and drawing went out. And I, I really couldn't focus in art school. I was 18, 19, and I couldn't sit down and draw, you know, still life, model, nature. It was impossible. I could focus for 20 minutes. Then I couldn't focus anymore. But there was one experience that was, yeah, it was early spring and I had primed actually a piece of paper, but I had used this kind of plastic paint that is not really good for priming anything because it's, it doesn't have a good surface. And then I started putting colors on it. And the color couldn't really stick. It's just that running. Similar an ice cream on a hot summer day. You want to bite, but most of the ice is on your arm, on your shoes. And it, it, it's difficult to explain. It, it sounds like nothing because it is nothing. But sometimes a nothing experience can be one of the most important experiences. And there was something that happened in my brain in that moment something about how I experience colors and I suddenly understood certain kind of, you could say mechanics. But you know, one thing is to understand, I think we understand stuff all the time, but to stabilize it so it becomes part of your ability, something that you can play with and move around. It took me 10 years. 
But that spring day, I really understood something, but it took me 10 years to be able to use it. Was it some form of revelation? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a kind of high word to use, revelation, but probably something like that. I think before I had no understanding of painting, no whatsoever. I didn't understand what was color about. I understood there was something called red, blue, green, but I had no idea about them. And from that second, I understood when you talk about colors, you don't talk about one color. You always talk about combination. And you understand that you are just colors in groups. And I also understood, not in an emotional way, what it means, color is warm, color is cold, how dark, how light. These are the three basic things. And actually, those things are not that important because they are just tools for the narrative you want to tell. But at that moment, I understood I could look at a painting, understand if it worked or it didn't work on the premise of colors, cold, warm, light, dark, which is actually, you could say, most of what a painting is about on a kind of technical level. You mentioned that you knew nothing about painting prior to joining art school. If we go all the way back to the start, you were born just outside of Tel Aviv to a Danish mother and a Czechoslovakian Jewish father. Yes. Who had fled the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Were they in any way artists? You grew up in Denmark. Did you have an understanding of art through your family at a young age? Mm, yes and no. I think the yes is more interesting. So when I grew up, there were one channel, black and white channel on the TV. And then there was the radio. And then you could draw. And most kids, when I was a child, they were drawing. And it was quite popular, you know, with your parents and uncles and aunts, because when you were drawing, you were at least quiet and you didn't make too much trouble. And also in my childhood house, my mother did all these kind of traditional things, sewing, weaving. And there was a sense that doing things with your hands were important. They just didn't have a name. It was nothing about high or low culture. It was just things you did with your hands. And, uh, you know, like every village has a fool. Then at that time, every school class had at least one who was good at drawing. And I was that kind of fool drawing boy. Usually you stop when you're just around the age when you become a teenager. Or that something else appears. You start getting very bad taste for drawing. You want to, you want to do all kind of cartoonish things and then you stop. It fades away. Other interest kind of kicks out drawing for most kids but I somehow continued and I think the reason was that the teachers we had in school in the 70s they were all educated in the 60s so the idea of being creative even if I went to kind of a normal school I went to the Jewish school but it was not a hippie school it was just a Jewish school but the teachers there they they understood that it was necessary to be creative. So I am and I was almost, that's a difficult English word, dyslectic. Mm. So I was allowed, instead of writing, I could do a drawing. So I always felt appreciated for my ability to draw. And actually, I was not the best one. There were other kids who were better than me. 
in the idea of what do you want to do when you draw? You want to draw a tank? It's easy to draw a tank from the side. But then from the front, it's more complicated. But there were other kids who could figure this out much better than me. Or when you got a little bit older, you want to draw trainees like sneakers. I remember my younger brother could do it much better than me. He could get the Adidas stripes more perfect. But I was the only one who continued and it had a very significant place in my life to do this drawing thing. It was kind of a free space. You know, I could draw things that I was fascinated by. I would draw a lot of war. We grew up with the idea of war. I would draw sex when I became a teenager. I would draw anything that I found interesting that would follow me for every year. New stuff is interesting. Is it true that you drew the best, most perfect swastika in the class? Yeah, it sounds odd, you know, when you're in a Jewish school, but on the other hand, it makes sense. That's the Antichrist of a Jewish child growing up after the Second World War. The Antichrist is actually the swastika. So that was important. You couldn't have only the Star of David. You also need this kind of complicated old German sign. And it's quite easy to do it when it's straight, but on an airplane, you have to do it when it's like a little bit on the side, 45 degrees, that were complicated. I could do it. Sometime other kids from other class, when they did the war plane, they would come and ask me to do the sticker, and I could deliver. It would seem then that you were well poised to flourish when you arrived at art school, but that wasn't the case, was it? The thing is, you know, to be a kid who's doing drawing at first one has nothing to do with art. Much later, it has something to do with art again. But there is a natural order that, and it sounds brutal, that you have to be destroyed. You go into art school, it will destroy you. And I felt that in a very bad way. I felt that this free room was really taken away from me. And uh, I really didn't want to be an artist after one year in art school. I thought it was ridiculous. I hated everything about it. I thought it was pretentious, which it is. You can still argue that art is in a way annoying. And again, you know, the thing that brought me back to art school again, and I left art school again and I went back to art school, actually had nothing to do with art. It was just, you know, when you grow up in your 20s, it's you believe that you want to do a lot in life, but actually you just want to have an answer when you meet people on the street. So what are you doing? You just need this answer. You can't just be nothing or nobody, Mr. Nobody. And I was Mr. Nobody for a long time in the sense of when I met people on the street, I didn't know what did I do. So in the beginning, I just needed, you know, a name card and that became an artist. And then later, it started really meaning something. And then it's like at a certain point, you don't notice that there's no choice anymore. Maybe there was never a choice, but for many years I felt there was a choice. I even felt that I forced myself into this role as being an artist. At one point early in your study, you actually ended up leaving and going to China for a period and living amongst a peasant community. That was after my first year in art school. I said, enough. With a friend, we left to Shanghai and... Um, in China, you get a no until you get a yes. It's just matter how and where you ask. At least it was like that in the end of the 80s. So suddenly, you know, it was possible for us to rent a room 
in the outskirts of Shanghai in a farmer's house. At that time, the farmers were, they were more well off than the rest. They could have an extra room that they could rent out. And I lived there and from them I learned to speak Chinese. I would also from them learn to cook Chinese food, basic Chinese food. And uh, I spent a year there. I was romantically very fascinated by, you know, old Chinese culture. And I remember I had this friend, an English teacher from university who was a Chinese English teacher. And I said to him, I would like to buy a little piece of calligraphy. And he said, I know somebody. And then he took me to this family where the man in the family, he was doing calligraphy, like old Chinese calligraphy. And I think they kind of thought, here comes this, you know, young Danish boy, we will sell him something, you know, so like a postcard, whatever. And I bought it, but then he asked me, do you want to see me paint? And I went up on the roof and he had like a studio the size of a shoebox. And then he painted what is called, I think in English, grass writing, which is a very freewheeling form of Chinese writing. I think for ordinary people, you can't read it. You can just smell the words through this kind of very expressionistic writing form. And I almost couldn't breathe. I got so touched by what he did and he saw it. He couldn't speak English. My Chinese was very poor. But he understood that I understood something that, and somehow we became friends. He also became my teacher. And I, I went there every week and he took upon me to educate me. And uh, every week he would take me to different Chinese restaurants to show me the kitchen. And he would teach me all the traditional ways of putting paper on silk, writing, carving uh, stamps in jade. And, you know, it was a very important year for me. I would sit for hours with him just with a brush, making lines, just from one side to the other side, just keeping the focus and understanding, you know, we would create together a very simple language about the line. When is the line there? When it is, is it not there? And I would develop ideas and language about focus that I didn't know existed. Wow. You describe your approach to art often with a, a Yiddish word. Kolboinik. Kolboinik. Yeah, it's something you... It's a word that comes from the kibbutz. I think it is Yiddish. And it actually means, you know, a garbage tin. It's where you throw all your leftovers in a kibbutz. When you've been in a dining room, you can't eat all the green peppers, you throw them in the kolboinik. So it's where everybody throws everything they don't need. And I think I, it's a word that I used almost 20 years ago. So it's also a word I could say I left behind. But it comes from the idea of having far too many interests. And you would think of, you would think, what am I really about? And what is my work about? And I thought it's actually just fishing in this big kolboinik whatever you can get out of there. And I remember also at that point, I thought perhaps maybe 90% of what you call you or yourself actually doesn't belong to you. It's just where you grew up. It's just your history that you didn't ask for. It's uh, your family history. How much is just really yours? 
And that was also part of the idea of called Boring and trying to say, what are your natural interests? And try to fish in this interest. You can pull out a painting. You could probably also pull out a lot of stuff. And I did at that point. Sometime to make an exhibition would just be going into my so-called studio because at that time, the studio was just a room full of interest. It was not really a painter studio. In a way, you could say, for some years, painting had actually abandoned me. It says, go out, leave. And I would just have a, a mountain of interest. And sometime during a show, I would simply go in there and put all these interests in plastic bags and go in and organize them in an exhibition space. Kind of taking all your interest and doing a free fall. You've mentioned that you come from a family of hoarders. Yeah, that's true. I actually, my whole family, it's like, I think in the future you will find out that there is a certain gene that is called a hoarder gene. It's like everybody, if they are not hoarding, that's because they are fighting it hard. But deep, deep down in them, they can fill up one basement after the other. And uh, I think uh, it is possible to put part of that behind you, especially when you think, I don't need to put it behind me. I could just fill another garage with stuff. But actually, art is a great tool to pass through different kind of material. And after you pass through your interest in this enormous amount of visual material, you leave it behind. There's certain things that I'm not interested in anymore. Things I won't pick up walking on the street, going into containers, looking what people put outside their houses, going to the doctor, looking at all the material that wants to inform you about stuff, going into the, the pharmacy and looking at all this material. If you have this and this sexual disease, you can go and be part of this group where other people have this sexual disease and then there's always visual material so you should feel comfortable. That's great for collage. But somehow this material, I... I digested so much of this that I'm not into this anymore. I put it behind and there's not too much sorrow about it. I can get sentimental and still pick up some junk somewhere, but it's not really in me anymore. Is it then hard for you to relate to your earlier work when you reflect on it? Sometimes. Sometimes I look at stuff and I have to remember what was that discussion about? Because you have to think of every artwork or every group of artwork as a certain discussion and if you look at them without the discussion I can sometimes be confused but then when I get back and I understand that specific group of artworks as part of a ladder that you walk on a weird ladder because sometimes the ladder doesn't go up actually some artistic ladders walk down like in these impossible Escher drawings it looks like you're going up but you're actually going down and that's also a big challenge for an artist. How can you develop ways of developing? It's not that easy. And you look at many artists that started out from a very talented place. And it looks like the ladder is going up. But like in the impossible drawing, actually after a few years, you saw the ladder went down. That meant that they just went into some kind of stubbornness or a corner or they got so full of themselves that they started just um, developing it deeper and deeper on a technical level. But everything that made it art just left out the side door. I find it interesting that in your art 
to make a broad generalization, there are a lot of identifiable objects, people, buildings, animals. How do you reflect on the role that they play in your work? Is that a conscious decision you've made to make your art more accessible or is that overly simplifying it? First of all, we are quite strange animals. I mean, we are somehow nature, but we can also look and discuss nature. We know we are going to die. We even bury each other, which makes us into quite a weird animal. And if you make an abstract painting, very often people will develop some kind of language to talk about what is abstract in front of you. Actually, I like the other way around. You look at something you can recognize, something on a table, somebody walking on a street, and you, with your normal language, you don't have to develop a new language to talk about what you see in front of you. But when you start talking, there is kind of an awkwardness about when you have to explain what you're seeing. There's something you could say, unheimlich, you say in German or uncanny in English, something you can't really place. So this so-called abstract feeling, I like that this happens when you look at something concrete, something you can explain in the radio, over the phone, with your everyday language. So I I presume that notion is also expressed when you say that you're passionate about the need to, in your own words, get the viewer on the dance floor. So you could say it's a little bit similar, you know, French fries. You ask people at a dining table, do you want some French fries? Most people are going to say no, because that's not good for them. But if you just put French fries there, everybody will eat. Or like a great pop song on the radio that you just, you feel too good for that song until you understand that you're moving your feet underneath the table. Something that makes you move without you really wanting it. Something that attracts you. Something that has this level of banality. That's getting people on the dance floor. You know, because you you have to get people to interact with the artwork. You can't leave them standing, reading about the artwork and thinking, oh, that's very interesting. That's not a way to get people into the artwork. Not like how I see it. I want people to get in there just even if they don't want. Something sticks to them. Something starts working on them. Then they can decide walk away. But already something is stuck. There are quite a few tools. Some artists describe it as nostalgia. Nostalgia is great. It's like a knife that is sharp on two sides. Because nostalgia is always a challenge for an artist because it's going to kill yourself without cutting the audience. But banality is the same. It can also cut the artist without cutting the viewer. So getting people on the dance floor just means even if they want it or not, they're going to get in there. Hmm. Well, with that in mind, how important is it to balance that by intriguing the viewer and instilling a level of mystery in your work? I think it's an impossible ambition to say, I want to install something uh, mysterious. You can't do that. That's going to fail for you. What you can do is that you, you can paint and draw what you find mysterious. And you can say, I don't need to understand. I just need to feel the connection. You ask me about childhood. Everybody has a childhood. For most of us, it's far away. And whenever we are trying to remember, I think we actually imagine most of it half of it, because we don't really remember. But the idea of childhood is quite interesting, because every time you experience something, 
in a deep way. Something very simple. You look out of the window. I mean, when I arrived here at your apartment, I took a picture just outside the first floor. There were sitting these two pigeons. And they were really sitting there in a very, that, that was their place. And you look at this for a moment, you don't know what to think about it. There's not much to say. There's just two birds sitting there. So every moment can actually be like a childhood. It can be something you experience in a way where it's a mystery for you, but it, it rings something deep in you. And that's actually what you can try to bring into your work. You know, every day there are at least 24 childhoods that you can work from. And um, you don't have to ask why something moves you. You just have to move with that. You have to create ways to bring it into your work and really shoot first, ask later. If you ask too many questions, you can do that. There's nothing wrong. But if you need explanation before you start working, you're, you're too slow. And the answers that you're going to create are not going to do you any good. You can answer later. You can even invent reasons. Very often when people, they ask me about my work, I think, well, what can I say? I, I will invent something. And if it's a good day, I'll invent something that is parallel, that speaks about something parallel that makes sense. Other times, you know, I will just invent something. And I would just ask, why don't I ask you about my work? Maybe we are actually on a quite democratic level when we look at my opinion. Of course, I did it. I'm the master in doing it, but maybe I'm not the master in explaining. Maybe it's also a mystery for me. And hopefully, part of it can be a mystery for you as well. And it's, it's a scary idea, you know, that imagine if an artwork is really great, then it makes us quiet. There's no... We don't know really what to talk about. Then we can always invent all kinds of discussions. And there are many people who are really excellent at pulling different artworks into their own discussion. And uh, in that way, uh, an artwork can be a bus. Many people can jump on it with different interests in wrong ways and in grand ways. When you're exploring these areas of interest, how do you decide what medium to work with? Is it purely instinctive? Let's take, for example, People and Animals, the recent exhibition you had at Glyptotegel, which featured this incredible series of 30 sculptures. How did you decide that this is the right subject matter with which to work in bronze and plaster? I mean, first of all, there are two words when you talk about art that people often use, you know, instinct or intuition. And they are kind of complicated words. But, you know, I think if you talk with people who are into mathematics, they also know that when they have to think really deep about something, they have to do a certain kind of free fall with all the knowledge that they have. They can't just stick with everything they know because the problem is if you stick with everything you know, you are going to construct a question, but without knowing it, you also already construct the answer according to what your knowledge is. So you have to do some kind of free fall. And we don't know what to call this kind of free fall. We do with everything we are about. All the knowledge. I mean, imagine also if you're a boxer. You cannot get into the ring and have a clear vocabulary. If he's doing this, I'm going to do that. You actually have to just get in there with all the knowledge that you have built over years. And without knowing what to call this kind of free fall, we talk about instinct. We talk about intuition. But actually... It's just trying to be really smart. 
It's nothing else. It's not that romantic. So for the sculptures, for many years, actually for almost 20 years, I was quite curious about the figure. And it's actually more weird that if you're interested in the figure that you want to do a painting, because a painting is a flat thing. The most natural thing would be, okay, if I'm interested in a figure, I'll pick up some clay or whatever, and I just make a, a figure. For some reason, a lot of artists who grew up in the 90s, who became artists in the 90s, we didn't believe, I say we, I can also just say me, but I've seen it with many different artists, didn't really believe in the idea of hands, fingers, nose, eyes, ears. It was quite difficult to believe in that. I don't know why. Maybe there's some clever person out there that has written a whole book about why didn't we trust those things. But it was not that easy to trust in a figure. So you had to start somewhere. And, you know, for years I, I tried to paint them. First, I would paint from images. Then I would start drawing from life. But parallel to this, I always knew, why not do it as a sculpture? Why are you actually drawing it if you're interested in a figure? And first time I, I really tried to do a sculpture, it was so complicated me to get around the face because I was so used to flatness and flatness was such a good friend. I have, I've done many sculptures. I used to do sculptures out of all kinds of fruits and vegetables, claws, wood, paper mache, everything. And I always knew these sculptures were trying to stand up and be just normal figuration. But it took me 20 years to really be able, to, and I, I'm saying be able because I let other people judge that. But before I actually start saying, okay, I'm just going to do a boy walking down the street in Adidas pants. He has the ugly haircut of a mullet that gets in and out of fashion every 10 years. And then I do, you know, my girlfriend. And she's dancing. She is dancing. I make a sculpture for dancing. How low can we go? But, you know, it's not that low to do somebody sitting on the floor with clothes, without clothes, somebody lying down. It's actually, if you pick up everybody's phone, you know, you take some random person's phone, that's what's on people's phone. What they eat, people they see, how they sit, how they lie down, how they smile, how they're sad. It's still there. It's just in our pocket, in our stupid phone. So if it's in our phone, if it's in our daily visual life, how come you can't make a sculpture about that? How come you can't make a sculpture of somebody on a bicycle? But it just seems awkward to make sculptures about this. And there's also why you rarely see there's very few contemporary artists really trying to make figurative sculpture because it's, it's actually complicated. And that challenge excites you? It, it really does. And it, I think the reason is that I... I don't want to sound vain, but I had a lot of failure when I was like a young artist in my 20s. A lot of trying and failing. And, and I didn't like to fail. Who, nobody likes to fail. If you say, oh, I like failing, then failure will just move somewhere else. Failure will always run away from you if you start by saying you like failure. But somehow as an artist or any creative person, I think even people who are into mathematics or physics, you have to get some kind of balanced, emotional approach to what's failing. Because otherwise, you are never going to dig any place that you don't understand or you don't know about. 
And at a certain point, you start finding it amusing to do stuff that most of your brain says you can't do this. You simply can't do it. All the education you have says no. Then there's part of your brain saying, yes, try. And actually, for anybody outside art, I understand this sounds ridiculous. Because what's the big deal? If you want to do a sculpture, just pick up some junk in your house. Take some paper mache. That's a sculpture. And they are right. They are actually right. But they're also wrong. It is difficult. That's something an artist has to keep very close to himself. There are a few things. You know, if you think of it as cards that you keep close to yourself. One thing is your impulse of stuff that means something to you. This kind of little instrument that you are able to be touched by things. This is what I call everyday childhood. That there's things you can't explain. Very normal stuff just move you. And you are able to, to get this feeling. That's a card you should keep very close to you. The other card is, I say, you should always remember to be an amateur. And what means amateur? It just means that an amateur will do a sculpture of somebody on a bicycle. 99% of professional artists will say, no, that's simply too banal, too stupid. But I think an amateur would also say, okay, this painting is about love. I make a red painting. That's like an amateur. But the amateur is somehow always right. There's always something in this very stupid approach, very direct approach that professional artists have a long education that do the exorcism of getting this amateur out. But that's actually wrong. You should always keep, you know, always nourish the amateur inside yourself. Well, you mentioned briefly education. You were a professor in Dusseldorf in Germany for many years, almost a decade. I'm curious what attracted you to take that role and what specifically you were keen to impart upon your students? I, I somehow got sideways into teaching. When I was in my last year at the Royal Academy in Copenhagen, the phone rang and there was this guy called Mika Hanula who called me and said, would you like to be a guest professor at the Art Academy in Helsinki? And I, I really started laughing. I thought it was so funny and it was really like in the Godfather movie, you know, an offer you can't refuse. But really, I saw it as some kind of irony, some kind of divine joke that I should be somebody teaching. And then I went up there and in the beginning, I really tried to invent all kind of uh, drills for the students. I thought, what, what can I do? I have nothing. And I, I felt like I was cheating. I had to invent stuff for them. But after a while, I found out that it is actually possible to treat teaching very similar as an artwork, a kind of discussion where you find out what is this kind of discussion about, what is the context of this work, and how can you create language around it? How can you challenge this discussion? And I, when I understood I could just be an artist leaning into these kind of discussions, I felt much more at ease. And then I, I went to Hamburg. I went to different places to teach for a short while. And eventually they asked me in Dusseldorf. And I was, I think I was in my mid-30s, something like that, which was quite young. But I did that for almost 10 years and I, I really enjoyed it. What I learned in Finland, I just 
kept on developing. You could say that I, I simply allow myself to go into studios, look at work and feeling the terrible feeling that I, I don't know what to say. I have, have no idea what this is about and just looking for entrance and then get in, trying to develop language together with the student, trying to find out, you know, spots where you could educate with your own experience. And I also made a decision when I was in Düsseldorf. I wanted to talk about other people's work, you know, other artists' work, and always use them as references, which was something I was against before. Because I also felt that, I think as a student, you also felt that having all these older artists on your shoulders makes you heavy. But then I found out that if it's, if you put it on a weight, on a scale, you better take all these artists in. They might kill you, but anyhow, they are in there. And I also took another decision in Düsseldorf. I said to the student, you have to talk about your work. It doesn't matter how little language you feel you have. You should take the language you have and try to talk because it gives you a chance from being the animal that is kind of doing art, but also watching yourself doing art. I thought that's, again, it's better to try to develop language and say to people, you know, it doesn't matter, you have nothing to say. Then that's what you're going to say the first time. Second time, probably you have a few more words. This exchange or conversation that you had with your students seems to be best epitomized by the project A Jew Interessant. Mm-hmm. Can you share about how that came to be and what your working process was? I mean, around 99... I had this uh, scholarship to go to München Gladbach. München Gladbach is in German and it's really suburbia. And I had the studio there and I was just walking around and had nothing really to do there. And it was the first time I ever had like a scholarship for a studio somewhere. And they even gave me some money so I could go to the to the kebab shop and have a lentil soup. But at that time, all over the city, they had these posters with... Paris wheels. There was like an advertisement for a local circus that had a Paris wheel. And I thought, you know, I like to do as a collage a Paris wheel. I love the idea of that you go up and you go down. And I thought it was kind of a, a nice image. When I did this, it somehow failed and it looked more like an explosion, like the Paris wheel would explode. And I thought, that's an interesting pattern. It's an interesting kind of visual context that you can actually load in a lot of material because you don't know if you're drawn in or pushed out. It has this weird, weird, superficial, cheesy feeling to it. So I did a few of these collages and it was not difficult for me to find material because material was there. You could actually see it was a nice way to shovel all this experience into a collage. Just sit and cut up everything you, by the way, had everywhere. Just put it in there and it would somehow organize itself and uh, I did a few of these collages and then I thought that's over now I, I understand that I got the message from that kind of pattern but then when I started teaching I always got these requests do you want to come and teach here do you want to come and after a while I thought no why don't you come here so all these different people came I had the studio that was only for these collages decided I want to do next three years I want to do 
nine big collages, the last ones I'll ever do. But I, I can actually, because I know the skill, there's actually a certain part of it that I could give away. I could just let other people, I could give them assignments. I could do what I don't feel like doing anymore. Say, go through the city, look for this and this, or go to this specific place, go again to the pharmacy, <laughs> go to the, you know, the doctor, go to the town hall, go everywhere and come back with material, find stuff, find everything, cut it up, make collages. And I would have this kind of collage class where everybody could just randomly glue stuff on these nine huge collages. And the idea of a Jew, interesting, means goodbye interesting, goodbye to all these terrible, grand, but heavy interests. And after two years, when there were just these impossible big collages, I would start more focused to work on them, to play with what the students had put there, to go down into details. I was actually like weaving It was like making complicated Persian carpets. And you could say doing these interesting collages was also like a chance for me to put behind me a lot of material and really say, okay, done, move on. You mentioned earlier the importance of allowing yourself to be inspired by the great artists of the past. I know you've identified the likes of Matisse and Bonnard as inspirations tell. I'm curious what your relationship is like with them then, if you admire them yet are still cautious as to not allow them to stifle your expression. When I was younger, you know, when I was an art student, you would bump into Kippenberger and it would take you years to get over or around or to dig under Kippenberger because you just, you know, as a young artist, you have questions, you have problems. Young artists, also older artists, we all always have problems. That means things we don't know how to handle. And you're looking for tools. And then suddenly you look at a certain artist and you see, okay, they have the tools. And then you pick up their tools. But what you also do when you're a young artist, you don't just pick up the tools. You also pick up their examples, their kind of imagery. And then you're really stuck. It's very difficult as a young artist to separate method and form which is actually you get often a little bit better when you get older or you can actually blur it out so nobody notices what you have stolen. But as a young artist, it's difficult to separate, you know, method and form. You will always take the forms. You like Philip Gosling, it's very difficult not to make a big fat hand because you understood the method, but you also, you can't separate it from his examples. You know, now I, I look at so much different stuff. I very rarely read about artists. I never dig into that. I'm not really interested. And I, I'm not interested in art in the sense that I'm interested in music or literature or other stuff. It's more I need certain information. I enjoy a painting, but very short. I will never sit for more than two minutes in front of a painting. Um, I just need to understand very basic things. Often I, it's enough for me to look at a great painting on a postcard. So, you know, people always ask about names and I really try to avoid mentioning names because it doesn't really mean anything. How could anybody also be really interested in that? I think um, there is something you learn from every artist and you can also say sometime the most radical, important stuff you learn from really bad artists. I think it's also like when you're 
looking at film, I've heard filmmakers saying that what they really learned, they learned from bad films, films that failed. Because every time, you know, certain artworks fail, there's actually the opportunity of learning. If you understand the failure, if you stand in front of something that really succeeds, it's very hard. Your arms become very heavy. It's very hard to get your arms up again. So I think like many artists, I learned from really great stuff and, and also poor stuff. And I think that, again, every artwork is a discussion. You have to be able to go into this, understand the structure, the method, and you can really learn from an artist's method because you just have to understand his form and his method is not the same. Method can lead to all kinds of forms. You talk about failure in art. Is there a success criteria for your own work? Yeah, there is. I, I think, and also when I look at older work, I recognize work that I would today say that failed. At that time, I saw that it was the opposite. I thought they were grand. But now I think there's some kind of discussion. I mean, now where this kind of work, I'm not too proud of them. But there's no way around it. I think uh, somehow you also learn to see the charm in what you would now consider failure. I think not even charm, something that is open, that is actually also part of what you can succeed with now. I think at the moment, you know, I'm interested in something again that's almost too low to deal with. I'm interested in picking up a flower, putting it in a vase, painting on the same table or at least two or three different tables that I have in my house. And, you know, when you look at the flower in a vase, you look at it. I don't care about names. I, have, I don't know names about anything, any flower. I'm not even deep interested in the flower. I just look at them and I feel they look back at me and there's this connection. Or what I said earlier, this weird childhood moment. You look at them and you understand that they are something in this world that you're part of, you pick them up, you put them there and it's ready. Then you start painting them and you know that you probably want to bend them somewhere, somewhere that you don't have a language for. You, you need them actually to stand up and maybe talk about completely different things. Things that is inside you, things that are inside you on that specific Wednesday afternoon. So you bend the flower towards that Wednesday afternoon. And I think, when a painting is good, it looks back on you in a way similar. You feel detached from it. You look alienated by what you just did. It just stands there and look at you. And uh, you also felt alienated from the flower in the vase. You feel connected, but also completely outside. You embarked upon a project a few years ago, Tal, where you would draw still life in various hotel rooms mm -hmm. across quite a long period of time. Can you tell me a little about what you learned from that process and why you felt compelled to do it? Yeah. At a certain point, I wanted to get deeper into drawing people, painting people. It was quite complicated. And I thought, what if I sit in front of somebody where there's a process of asking them, can you sit in front of me? Is that productive, this kind of awkwardness? Then, you know, in art school in Dusseldorf, I tried to get a, a professional model. 
But I could see that everybody in class would go into this choreography of saying, now it's a life drawing. And they would sit on this distance with this piece of wood. And there wasn't this connection to what they were drawing because it was just almost everybody was just looking at it as a technical test, as a practicing proportions, distance. And I thought, who cares about that? So there need to be a connection. There need to be some part of you that reach out before you draw somebody. So I started saying, okay, I, I, I will create this kind of small house where I said, what am I doing? I'm always asking people. Sometimes they're wearing clothes, sometimes they undress. And that's awkward. And that's also intimidating. In a way, it's, it's a weird situation. And at that time, you know, I, I thought, okay, I travel a lot. It can always be in hotel rooms, these kind of anonymous places that try not to be anonymous. They always try to make it cozy. And I'm alien there, and the person I'm drawing is alien there. And uh, I did this for three years. I always would paint paper pink. I thought that was a, in different shades. Some, very rarely, a yellow piece of paper. And I would take the drawings back to the studio and ask, can I paint from this? Is it possible to squeeze out even a painting from this? And every time, you know, when you do a drawing, sitting in front of something, you are in a very special way connected to what you're looking at. All the mistakes you do, all the disproportion you do, drawing the background, everything is quite open there. Then after this, when you do a painting, it moves more and more away from the person you were sitting in front. It just becomes, before it's a painting of Emma, but later when you do a painting or a painting of that painting, even a drawing from that painting, it's just a painting. And it's a, it's a interesting process. But actually, I want to say that I, I also don't care about interesting process. I also don't care about the idea of experimenting or I just, care about how to create a great drawing or great painting. That's everything I care about. And you need to do certain experiments. You need to put certain kind of stones in front of yourself that you're going to fall over. But at the end of the day, the only thing I care about is a great artwork. You seem like a very calm, composed person when discussing your work, Tal. I wondered, are you at all overtly emotional when creating your work or is it very much a cerebral exercise it's difficult to answer i have no clue on that level who i am and who i'm not when i at the moment i also paint birds in cages i started this one and a half year ago so it was a great idea to have a bird that's too big for a cage and when i draw or paint a painting like that i think about how the bird should look and in which way it should be too big for the cage. But a lot of the time I think about the bars. I think every time you paint a bar, there's another chance in the painting. You know, how much can you slide into the painting and the viewer would still say bird in a cage, but actually you slide in all kinds of things that makes the painting go a little bit dizzy, just slightly dizzy, slightly out of balance there's a lot of emotional stuff but i think i 
All this emotional stuff happened years ago. I have no clue when this happened. But suddenly one day you understand bird in a cage. That's an amazing possibility. That's a grand possibility for everything. But the emotion to make this happen maybe happened a long time ago. Maybe somewhere else on a bus, in a train, while sleeping. So doing the works, I would say, not too emotional. Just quiet, focused, like in a very deep game. Like in a game that I think there's nowhere else that I can use everything that I'm built of. I think this painting is it's the place that I can embrace this the most. Hmm. What do you see as the role of visual artists tell in a society like the one that we find ourselves in today? I think uh, art has the possibility of being quite ahead. Idea-wise, artists has a tendency to walk faster than most in society. Not in the way that they create new political parties, new movements. Some artists does. But I'm not talking about the artists. I'm talking about the artworks. They can sometimes be quite fast. And, you know, artworks, again, every artwork has its own discussion. Some artworks is there to make things more complicated for you, to make you doubt everything you believed in yesterday. Some artworks give you hope. You can also talk about beauty on a deeper level, that perhaps beauty is also kind of a revolution. It's not beauty in the sense of nice colors, uh, beautiful flowers, but beauty as something that takes away our language. Because when you, when you step into the gap of having no language, there's also a chance of developing new language, new ideas. And artwork can sometimes do this, get you into the gap. Finally, Tal, with all your experiences of exhibiting and lecturing globally, are there any traits or characteristics that you would reflect on as being specific to the Danish art scene? Specific to the Danish art scene is always longing for other places in Denmark. And that actually means that Danish artists are always trying to get in stuff from other places. Mm. I think that there's a specific Scandinavian approach towards society, our I don't know the, the English word for it, but probably that's good because then I have to develop a, a word for it. Welfare system. What would that be in English? Welfare system? The welfare system, the, I would say there's some kind of softness here. I don't know if nature is actually... People always talk about the Nordic nature. I think that's more branding. Still, Scandinavia... The Scandinavian model, maybe in the future, it's just an illusion. I don't know. I don't hope so. But there is some kind of softness in this model that I think you can quite often see in artworks. Actually, nobody has never asked me this before, and actually, I have no clue about it. I'm sure other people can answer that. And also for me, I always have one foot here, but also have one foot in countries that doesn't exist anymore or, you know, other European countries. So I'm kind of a little bit of tourist here as well. 
Was that sense of being an outsider something that was difficult at a young age, but something you've managed to make peace with through your career in art? I didn't like my name when I was a child. My name Tal is in Danish just means like number. It means nothing. And also growing up, you know, in suburbia, Copenhagen, to be a Jew was also something I would try to run away from because you just want to be like the rest of the people on your street. When you get older, you find possibilities in your name and in if you are Buddhist or Jewish, Muslim, Christian, whatever you are, you find your possibilities. And again, later you understand there are certain things you can't run away from. And then there are certain things from your background you should and could run away from. You've recently celebrated your 50th birthday. How do you feel in your own skin today? It's interesting because the last year, probably because of this boring pandemic, I can't say that, say that. Pandemic. Pandemic, which is not boring. It is everything but boring, but also boring. When I was younger, you know, you try hard, you fight hard to become an artist so you can tell people in the street, I'm an artist. And then you are for many years, for 20 years, you're an artist. But now at the moment, I, I feel less and less, you know, this idea of being an artist. Every day I walk into the studio and there's, I have the desire every day to start up these works, get into this conversation, this kind of dreamy way of dealing with the world. But the name is kind of leaving me somehow at the moment, which is weird. Probably also has to do that there is this feeling of isolation at the moment. But I, I look at it, I see the the so-called artist is somewhere down in my sock at the moment. It's not really on my head anymore. But I, on the other hand, I get deeper and deeper into the fantasy of making art. Well, Tal, whether you feel at ease with the label of artist or not at this moment, I, I thank you for sharing your insights and reflections so openly with us today. Thank you. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based Studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.